from the beginning of Acts chapter 2. I'll pick it up in verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I invite you to join me as we pray our prayer for peace. If you have attended our midweek prayer service, this prayer is very familiar to you, but I'll invite you to join me in this. O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold, pour out your spirit upon all flesh, and hasten the coming of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Warren is going to lead us through the Lord's Prayer first in Italian, and then he'll invite us to say it together in English. Although I guess you can say it in Italian with him if you speak Italian. All right, yeah, after hearing it in Italian, just invite you to join me in, in praying the Lord's Prayer in English this morning. Padre nostro, che sei in cieli, sia santificato il tuo nome. Venga il tuo regno, sia fatta la tua volontà, come in cielo, anche in terra. Daci oggi il nostro pane quotidiano. Rimettici i nostri debiti, come anche noi li abbiamo rimessi ai nostri debitori. E non ci esporre alla tentazione, ma liberaci dal maligno, perché a te appartengono il regno, la potenza e la gloria in eterno. Amen. 
together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now a responsive reading from Psalm 104. O Lord, how manifold are your works, and wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Now a reading from our gospel for today, John 14, Nathan. John 14, 8 through 17. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The word of the Lord. It's occurring to me, uh, with all of these readings and all of this liturgy, um, you know, I grew up in Pentecostal circles and am still a Pentecostal. In fact, the organization that I work for has Acts 2 in the name. Uh, so I guess what you're hearing this morning is like a, a therapy session for me um, that you're sitting through with all of this liturgy. Growing up, if I would have 
thought to myself, what is the most Pentecostal a service could be? It would have been uh, no planning whatsoever. Uh, but I'm realizing just now uh, that I have basically scheduled every minute of this service. I don't know if that is like a projection or a reaction against something, uh, but the most Pentecostal service that I could think of involves a lot of uh, reading together, readings in another language, um, readings from kids. By the way, if you see Callie Day or Maddie Van Note, give them a high five for their great job of reading this morning. So uh, the most Pentecostal of all services, uh, here we are. I, I want to, I guess, do something a little bit different uh, from, and, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with kind of Pentecostal services or how this text is often presented, this Acts 2 text, this story of the descent of the Spirit. Growing up, the emphasis, for, for me at least, and, and maybe you've heard this as well, whether in Pentecostal circles or not, uh, these texts, the emphasis is on going and sending. So God sends the Spirit to create and to renew. God sends His Spirit upon all flesh. God sends the Spirit as an advocate and a helper. God sends out His followers then to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and Pentecost is kind of this catalytic moment that propels the church to proclaim the good news. It propels them outward. It is the equipping event for the Great Commission, which begins with the word, go. And this is the fulfillment of Acts 1-8, this to the ends of the earth reality. Go, go, I'm sending you. Go, go out. And I, again, I, I grew up hearing this theme emphasized over and over again. I, I think it's at least possible that it obscured another theme which is maybe equally as present and just as important in the narrative of Pentecost and Acts as a whole. Now Jesus is, is clear, and I don't want to take away from that reality because it is true, we're called to go on mission. However, it seems, and maybe you've picked up on this theme already in the text for this morning, but Jesus is just as clear in his, in his instruction to his disciples to stay, to stay. The Gospels present a, a picture of Jesus as one who's regularly on the move during his ministry. And given how mobile Jesus is in the Gospels, it might be easy to, to miss or to overlook the instances in which he sticks around. One example is when Jesus appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and this is, of course, following his resurrection and prior to his ascension. And he accepts an invitation to stay with his disciples. And during his stay, he reveals himself to them in the sharing of a meal. Read that in Luke chapter 24. It's worth mentioning, of course, that he disappears immediately following this meal. But I'm trying to make a point here. He stays with his disciples. Later in that chapter, just a few verses later, he instructs his disciples to, to stay at the beginning of Acts, Luke tells us that Jesus, while staying with them, ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. And at the beginning of Acts 2, we find them being obedient to this command. They're waiting together in a room, together in one place. And this seems to suggest, at least to me, 
that the acts of, of staying, of abiding, of waiting are not only acts of obedience, but they serve as the foundational uh, sort of piece of our, our mission. So before we go, uh, prior to our going, we are to stay, to wait. And I also want to suggest, I want to look at a couple of ec- episodes in the time we have left today from later in the narrative of Acts in which it seems that staying is actually uh, necessary to our going. So once we've gone on mission, it is important that we also are attentive to stay in the place which we're called to go. I, I, I should also say here that in one sense, it's not at all true that the apostles are very good at staying places. Uh, it's maybe misleading to suggest that they, they stayed anywhere for long after leaving Jerusalem. In fact, I read a, a scholar this week who estimated that Paul traveled some 8,700 miles on land and another 6,800 miles by sea during his missionary journeys. It's hard to consider those figures, especially given the transportation realities in the first century that um, Paul had enough time to kind of kick up his feet and lounge around and stay anywhere for long. But there are a couple of instances of the apostles staying in Acts that sort of jumped off the page to me this week. I want to take a look at a couple of these. The first is in Acts 9, the account of Saul's conversion that we've spent time looking at here recently. In Acts chapter 9, verse 19, Luke tells us that Saul, following his conversion, stays with the disciples in Damascus. And it may be easy to gloss over this verse and forget that Paul spends days with the very people he had set out to Damascus to capture and to, to harm. What does this staying mean? I mean, looking at this text, it doesn't matter how miraculous Saul's encounter with Jesus was, there had to be some residual awkwardness during his stay in Damascus. I mean, can you imagine? Saul has been busy dragging off followers of the way to prison, and now he's there sleeping in the guest room. He's staying. When we looked at this story a couple of weeks ago, Matt mentioned a detail that I found so challenging. Luke tells us that Saul, after this experience with Jesus on the road, goes without food or drink for three days. What's remarkable is that he breaks that fast only after he enters into community and sticks around. He stays and breaks bread with those whom he once sought to persecute. And I think this is central to the Spirit's work that we read about in Acts 2. The expression of this is sticking around, sharing a meal, even with your enemies. Through a transformation of heart, it makes possible staying in an awkward place. This picture of former enemies dining together is what makes Pentecost possible. In the next chapter in Acts, Luke recounts the story of how a reluctant Peter visits the house of Cornelius, who is a Gentile, which means that it's a no-no for him to do that. It takes some divine intervention, but Peter eventually accepts the invitation to travel to Cornelius' house, and when he arrives in Cornelius' home, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, he went in and found that many had assembled So this is not just one Gentile, this is a room full of Gentiles. He's not supposed to be there. 
he said to them, you yourselves know that it is improper for a Jew to associate with or to visit an outsider. I'm just laying the groundwork here, everybody, in this room. You know that I'm not supposed to be here, right? But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. You can imagine the audience responding, well, thanks a lot, yeah. As remarkable as the events that lead to Peter's journey to Cornelius' house may be, remember the vision that he sees of a sheep descending, what's perhaps most remarkable of all is in verse 48, when this group of Gentiles invites Peter to stick around. Not just for a meal, but for several days. Again, I mean, as remarkable as the experience of Peter being summoned to Cornelius' house may be, imagine the, the scene on the ground after everybody towels off, after being baptized. They share a meal together. Here's a Jew in the home of Gentiles going about their routines and even eating the food that they offer to him. How scandalous. Biblical scholar Beverly Roberts Gaventa comments on this scene of, of Peter sticking around. She says, consistent with the entire narrative of Acts, this request for Peter to stick around for a few days suggests that the inclusion of the Gentiles does not have to do only with the grudging admission to the circle of the baptized. Instead, including Gentiles means receiving them entering their homes, and accepting hospitality, even meals in those homes. So consider what misunderstandings or conflicts or kind of petty grievances or annoyances might there have been during those several days when Paul slept next to Ananias in the next room over, or when Peter and Cornelius shared a bathroom. I'm not sure about the historicity of that, but I mean, consider sharing this intimate space with those you're not supposed to share intimate space with. In a few moments, we're going to eat together. It's Common Meal Sunday. And the meal that we'll share here in the next room over with brothers and sisters is, among other things, a kind of practice run. It's kind of a rehearsal dinner for the real thing. So we're internalizing the rhythms as some of you prepared meals yesterday. I baked some cookies yesterday. If you want to try my oatmeal cookies, they'll be back there. We're internalizing the rhythms of sharing meals with people who we're close with so that we might actually go out and do the real thing with people with whom we have disagreements, people who are outside the household of faith, uh, people who we'd rather not share meals with, and maybe that's the reality for some of you here today. You'll be eating lunch next to somebody you don't like, but uh, so be it. It's a practice run. And as a side note, uh, if you're considering the implications of what it might mean to share space with strangers or even enemies, and it's making you feel a little bit uncomfortable, I get it. Um, me too. I'd like to offer you a word of encouragement uh, you're not alone in your discomfort. Uh, we're talking here about Peter, the same Peter who stood up on Pentecost, as we read earlier, to say that the Spirit was being poured out on all flesh. He's later in need of some serious convincing to actually practice what he preached. I mean, think about it. It took time 
and God's repeated prompting for him to live into the reality that he testified to on the day of Pentecost. In fact, do you want to know how much time passes between Acts 2 and Acts 10? It's probably a decade or more. In the intervening time, from when Peter says, the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, to the time that he actually realizes the implications of that for his own table practice and table fellowship. If you're feeling uneasy this morning, uh, St. Peter is with you. Uh, it, it might take some time. Uh, it might take some divine intervention. But please know that the reality that is made possible at Pentecost, the last days that Joel is speaking about, that Peter testifies to, maybe even unwittingly, are available to us even now. And the fact that it's the last days means that we share space with people that we might rather not share space with. I feel just as uncomfortable with that reality maybe as, as you do this morning. It takes 10 years in a rooftop, rooftop trance until Peter can apply his own sermon to his table practice. It turns out that this difficult and uncomfortable work is exactly the work that the Spirit equips us for. He helps us hold space for difference and to be with those with whom we wouldn't otherwise share space. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit descends, the, the gathered crowd we read earlier asks this question, what does this mean? They hear these Spirit-filled believers speaking in their native languages. They gather and they ask the question, what does this mean? And this question, this question, what does this mean, shows up in various places in the Acts narrative in different forms. I want to take a look at, as we close today, a couple of the forms that question takes. What does this mean? What does this mean? So in Acts chapter 9, verse 21, after Saul's conversion, the followers of the way who are familiar with Saul's intentions and what he's been doing to followers of the way, they ask the question, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked the name of Jesus? What does this mean? Has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? What in the world does this mean that Saul is now standing up proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God? What does this mean? Likewise, in Acts 11, when the circumcised believers heard about Peter's visit to Cornelius, they asked yet another version of this question. What does this mean when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? What does this mean? This question is dotted throughout the book of Acts. The Spirit, our advocate and helper, helps us to answer this question, not only to answer this question, but to live into this new reality boldly, even if it takes time and perhaps divine intervention. I don't think it's accidental that the book of Acts ends with this same theme of, of staying reinforced. In Acts 28, 28, Paul announces to a group of Jewish leaders in Rome, let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Then Luke tells us he lived there two whole years, stuck around, 
at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. I think that word all is pretty important. If you're like me, uh, you may have repeatedly been challenged to consider the command to go and the importance of being sent. Uh, Looking at these texts, Acts 2 and Acts 1, the command to go in the Great Commission. But I think one of the, the gifts that these texts offer to us, maybe in a, in a more subtle way, is to consider what, what it might mean for us to heed the instruction of Jesus to stay, to stay put. Abiding in Jesus comes first. As it turns out, staying in places of discomfort is exactly what we're called to do when we get to where the Spirit sends us to stay in relationship, to stay in places of discomfort. That's not great news, but it's it's true. To stay in Jesus' presence that we might more clearly discern what the Spirit is speaking, to stay with one another. So if, if you'll stand with me before we approach the table and then go back to share a meal together, I'd like to close with a, a poem, and this will serve as our invitation to the table. Uh, This poem is by theologian Willie James Jennings. A clear theme of the text we've considered this morning is that we are in need of a helper. Uh, We we can't faithfully follow Jesus without the Spirit's help, and we can't faithfully follow him without uh, being in proximity to one another. The coming of the Holy Spirit means many things, but perhaps chief among them is the theme that we aren't self-sufficient. Could self-sufficiency be redeemed? But who would want such a thing? Certainly not one who asked Mary for life, or one who needed friends along the way of discipleship, or one who called on an Abba God, or one who fell onto God's spirit like a limp body in need of support just to face the morning sun, or one who said, this is my body and my blood, eat me because you need me in you. Certainly not one who, on a cross, killed the illusion of self-sufficiency. So we'll approach the table this morning. form two lines here down the center aisles. And as you approach the table, you hear the words spoken over you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And this table and those tables that we'll set up in a moment serve as our practice run, our uh, rehearsal dinner for the real thing. Holy Spirit, would you empower us? Lord, as we remember your death, we're challenged to view it as death to the illusion of our own self-sufficiency. Equip us for this challenge Thank you for sending a helper, and thank you for the men and women and boys and girls who call this community of faith home. We pray that you, Spirit, helper, advocate, comforter, would equip us for this task. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.